This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Ferd Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Ferd Neiman here again today. My guest today is a new first-time mobile home park owner. He's actually diving full in, all in. He's in one of his mobile homes right now. He's getting his, his hands dirty. He's under under trailers as we speak. Not really as we speak, but last night and probably more today. Do it dealing with this winter, winter cold we've got here. I'm excited to have this guest on. Uh, please help me welcome Mark Beavis. Hey, Mark, how you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me, Ferd. How are you doing? Good, man. Well, I'm excited to have you on. It's been fun to kind of watch your journey here. Decide to get in this asset class and, and jump right in. I think you're doing it right that you're you're down in the trenches, as I like to say, and you're going to learn a lot and you're already off to a good start. But tell us how you got into the business. And, and, and tell us, you know, a little bit of your background and we'll dive into some more MHP stuff. Sure, sure thing. So um, essentially, I would consider myself pretty young, graduated from uh, USC a couple of years ago, and I was working in the music industry, actually, and uh, originally from uh, Miami. That's where I grew up, born in Columbia, but uh, grew up in Miami, and I was working out of a uh, co-working facility, essentially, and I met a gentleman there, uh, Larry, who I know you know as well, mm -hmm. and he's been uh, super helpful in my mobile home park journey. Essentially, I met him at that co-working facility, and uh, we were talking a little bit, and he had mentioned that he was looking for somebody to help him out and grow his his real estate portfolio. Uh, and he was only doing um, he was doing multifamily at the time, and you know we stayed in touch, and it didn't work for me because I was working in the music industry. And he wanted to know if I had any college friends willing to do it. Anyways, two, three months pass and I had really given it some thought. So I gave him a call and uh, said, hey, I'd be interested in doing this. And he took me under his wing a little bit. And uh, it was a little bit of a learning curve, but he was real patient with me and taught me the ropes. And uh, I started to really love the asset class. And over time, after uh, helping him acquire a property and doing due diligence on it, I got really, really excited about mobile home parks. And decided to get uh go and get one of my own that's great man that's great you learn learn the business as fast as you can and then dive right in so now you're up in iowa um it's cold as can be up there um tell me how tell me how that's going the, you know, new ownership like i was saying previously on, offline you know we're having some of the same problems with frozen pipes it's been a bad bad winter for that but how what are you learning and how are you how are you tackling this new assignment yeah so i mean a lot of what they teach you in terms of due diligence uh, for mobile home parks, I think it goes for a lot of regions where they don't deal with the brutal winters that we're dealing with up here. So a lot of that stuff gets left out. And, you know, I did due diligence in late summer, early fall. By the time it comes to closing, you don't really see all the problems that are going on. And uh, we're facing a brutal winter, something that me as being a Miami boy wouldn't have been very aware of a lot of the stuff that goes on. And I'm learning the hard way on a lot of stuff, but even that stuff is, is a good lesson for the future. Sure. No, I think definitely the more you can learn, you know, the, you know, I used to have an internship with the army JAG Corps and the guy that trained me said the, the education from the school hard knocks. And he's like, 
It's yep. ideally you pay, you pay as low a tuition price as possible. And, and if you can get away with two or three or four or $5,000 of tuition to learn a big problem and how to solve it, then it's better off. Some people, they don't learn until it's a $100,000 problem or the million dollar problem. So definitely, um, definitely tough. And we, we're learning stuff all the time here at our company too. So it's, it's part of the, part of the business. Um, now I know you've been chasing a number of deals lately. Tell us how you're finding deals. It's a competitive market. Um, like you said, you're, you're young, just getting, just getting going. How are you building rapport with sellers? How are you meeting sellers that you can compete in a, in a crowded marketplace? Sure. So I'm doing a combination of uh, direct mail, cold calling and ringless voicemail. Actually, ringless voicemail has worked really well for me. So what I'll do is I'll send out a uh, handwritten letter that obviously I'm, I'm not writing myself. Um, and I'll follow that up with a ringless voicemail about two weeks later. And uh, are you familiar with how ringless voicemail works? Yeah, I get, I get them all. I get them all the time. They're annoying. <laughs> but okay, it, yeah, but, yeah. But it works for you great. I just I get them from my church. I, I they send all these updates every day of the weather. I'm like, I blocked it, but then I still get the voicemail. So it's uh, yeah, exactly. So I mean, it'll essentially just deliver a voicemail into somebody's phone. So on your iPhone, you know, you're turning your phone on, and you see that you have a missed call, even though the call never came in listen to the voicemail. So I'll send something that essentially says something along the lines like, hey, this is Mark Bebos. Not sure if you received my handwritten letter that I sent you uh, a week or two ago. I'm really interested in buying your park. Please give me a call if you have any interest in selling. And you know, that one mail sometimes doesn't work, but the mail coupled with the ringless voicemail, I'll get calls back and um, I'm doing a lot of that. And then I've got a priority list on, on parks I like, and I'm just cold calling them. And uh, it seems to be working. I like ringless voicemail because I'm sure like yourself, I hate cold calling. I don't know if you do any of your cold calling, have people do it for, I'm assuming you have people do it for you, but nobody likes a cold call. So ringless voicemail has, has been working well for me. That's great. Yeah. I haven't done, I don't do cold calls much anymore, but I've done a ton of them in the past. And um, I used to do back in the day, I did like a hundred in a row. It's like, I'm not getting this down. They're, they're brutal. It's like, man, I just hate doing a hundred in a row, but I'm sure there are people doing a thousand in a row, but it's, it is a numbers game there. But I think you're doing that. I think that's pretty wise. You're doing the combination strategies. We do some similar follow-up type stuff that works. You know, I think the handwritten letters make a difference. Um, they just, they take more time. You can't send 30,000 of them as easily. Especially like I do it on my, on my own. I write it myself, you know. Oh, wow. My, my handwriting on my stationery um, and put a personal note in there and stuff as opposed to the pre-printed one. But I don't send very many. I send them very, you know, I can't, right? I send them targeted. Sure. Um, if, I do, if I do five a day, well that, you know, you do it every day, you know, at some point that you really send them 50 parts you want, if it does, you pepper people with, you know, personal touch. Problem is my handwriting is horrible. So I can't, every once in a while I get a call like, are you calling for this? Uh, this park was demolished <laughs> three, three years ago. I'm like, oh, sorry. Um, but anyway. Well, that, that's, that's great. Tell us what else, what else you're excited about this, what you're, what you're learning so far. Yeah. I mean, so I'm really excited about the asset class, but right now the way I'm, I'm looking at it is uh, I've certainly made a lot of mistakes in my due diligence that I'm coming to learn right now being a first time uh, park owner, but I'm really trying to embrace the whole mindset of you either win or you learn there's not really any losing and i think that comes true for uh for first-time park owners i know me and a community of a bunch of others you know we pay uh a good amount of money for mentorship or tools everybody's going to this frank and dave uh mobile home boot camp and so at the point where you're spending a ton of money uh to learn about this 
yeah, maybe you get your underwriting off by a thousand or a few thousand bucks on some stuff, but being actually out in the field and learning it for the first time is a ton of valuable knowledge. So I'm trying to stay positive about everything and I'm just super excited to be learning. Um, if you want me to get into some of the, the lessons learned, I'm more than happy to yeah. get into those. Specifics. Yeah, 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 please do. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, first things first, if you're going to be buying in a cold weather place like Iowa or anywhere else where it's super cold, I think it's really important to actually get down underneath the home and, you know, open up that skirting, pull it back and inspect the belly. Cause I think a lot of people don't really check the belly and the belly is what really insulates these homes. If the belly's shot, your insulation is going to be shot. And then they tell you, check to make sure the heat tape is there. Well, there was heat tape on every single one of my homes where I went wrong was I didn't put the back of my hand to the heat tape to see if the heat tape's actually working. In addition, I think it's really important to factor the total cost that the tenant is paying. Um, you know, so you could always look at rents and say, okay, these guys are paying $500 a month for rent and a two bedroom apartment is a thousand. I could bump it up. But if you've got an old home that isn't insulated, it's important to consider how much they're paying in energy. So ask them when you're doing due diligence, hey, how, how much is your mid-American energy bill costing you? Because a regular home might only be paying $80 a month to run their furnace, but because these homes are poorly insulated, they could be paying 180, 200, in some cases, $300. So your whole plan to go in there and jack the rents is not reasonable when their total costs, which you're not seeing, you're only seeing the rent payments, you're not taking into account the total cost. You can't go in there and start boosting their costs because at that point, it makes more sense for them to just go to a single family home. That's a, that's a great point. I think that was missed all the time. And I've, I've learned that from my tenants, not, not even by myself. I learned it. I bought a single family house, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago. And it was the lady who was in there was a Section 8 renter. So she didn't pay any money. She paid like $30 a month. Section 8 paid the rest. Well, she moved out because it was too expensive. And she's like, moved out of nowhere. And she'd been there for years. And I said, I'm like, what do you mean too expensive? It's $30. And she said, my, my heat bill is 800 bucks a month. I said, what? I had never inspected the attic. There was no insulation in the attic of that home. So the, and she was heating her house through her stove, which is also a safety issue. She'd open the stove and then she moved out because utilities. And then another instance, I had a, a really nice home to sell and I had a guy in the park uh, who was ready to buy it cash and came and looked at it and he said, oh, it's, a, it's an electric furnace, no deal. And I was like, electric, what's the big deal? That's all the new ones are electric. He's like, yeah, but it gets colder because the electric bill is going to be twice as much or three times as much than the gas version. He goes, I'll buy it if you convert it to gas. It was wow. not going to be inexpensive to convert it to gas at that point. So in colder markets, like you're up in South Dakota, Iowa area, yeah, it probably makes sense to you know buy some more gas furnished homes, gas heat instead of electric. It's a little more expensive to manufacture, but your residents can better absorb it, you know, better save money in that, which does give you an opportunity later to increase rents more. But also, it makes it just more of a certainty of gas is so much cheaper than electricity. And then a, a third item I learned from a resident was uh, putting a, I want to, I'm forgetting the name of it, I want to call it a heat pump, um, a heat pump on your your water heater um, so that you don't have to heat, so it's just cheaper. Basically, it's like a $1,000 upgrade that makes your, your electric bill cheaper by $100 a month or something. So some guy who was a plumber was moving into a house and said, you need to do this. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know about that. So... Yeah, I think you're, you're definitely at the nail on the head that you got to look at the total cost, especially park on homes where you got, you know, you got the home rent and the lot rent. And you want to try to reallocate the uh, the two items. You can only do it to, to a degree that is reasonable in the marketplace because your residents are going to know. People ask me, what's the cost to heat these? I'm like, I don't know. I've never lived in one. 
I only have them when they're baking for a minute. You know, I don't have them the same heat. So I'll ask, I've asked some of my people who work for me here in the park, say, hey, what is your bill? And I've kind of had a representative sample of, based on like, this is a single woman who lives in a newer home. This is a family who lives in an older home. And I can then gauge what the actual electric bill is. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's a great point. And um, I've come to notice that, you know, the homes that have the newer siding, as opposed to the old homes that are just painted on the old metal or the wood or whatever, um, homes that have siding, their energy bills are a lot, a lot lower. So, you know, starting to learn how to factor that if the home has siding, then the total cost is going to be a lot lower for the tenant. Sure. And then while we're talking about energy preservation, especially up north, you can get insulated skirting. It's just, it's considerably more expensive than standard vinyl skirting. So, you, you know, it might not make economic sense in the Midwest, but up in the North, it probably does. And then some degree it may be necessary to keep the pipes from freezing. We've had more pipes freeze in the last week than we've had in five years combined. I mean, it's just been unbelievable. Yep. Um, oh, this cold has been unprecedented. So, I mean, I'm not even sure we made the wrong decision in not getting insulated skirting, but it's definitely, it's definitely an option. Um, and yeah, checking the heat tape is crucial because, you know, we've had it happen too. Heat tape's on, it worked, and we did a test in October, November, it worked. We didn't go back two weeks ago. And we go this week, and we're like, we, we actually installed that ourselves, and it didn't work. Somehow, the fuse blew on that outlet, and the entire home is frozen up into the water heater, and it's a huge nightmare. It'll replumb the whole house. Um, so yeah, definitely lessons learned. So you're learning them, you're learning them young, but I'm learning them old. It's still the same problem. Yep. It's great, man. What other tips or tricks do you have for us, Mark? Uh, so I guess a tip, and you're familiar with my crazy bank financing story, is yeah. if you're getting bank financing, make sure you get that uh, bank approval in writing on a bank letterhead from whoever your commercial loans officer is. Uh, if they give you their word that, yes, you've got financing or yes, you've got approved, don't take their word for it because crazy stuff does happen. Make sure you get that approval in writing. It could seriously save your entire financing process. Yeah, let, let me touch on that. That's a good point. If you, if you don't mind telling the rest of that story, it's a good one. I, I think our listeners would like to hear it. But the, the document you're, I think you're referring to is a loan commitment. So typically when you go talk to a mortgage broker or actually the bank, they'll give you a term sheet which will have some sort of you know, fine print, if you will, at the bottom. It's, it's typically it's in bold, actually, but it says, this is not a commitment to lend. It's pending a further underwriting. Typically, you make an application with the sales guy, who's typically a vice president of the commercial lending or, or, or a relationship manager would be their title. And you make an application, they give you the, yeah, it's thumbs up. I'm, I'm fighting for you, man. But rarely does that person have the authority to give you a loan. They typically have to go to a loan committee. And depending on the size of the park, depending on the size of your portfolio, depending on a number of factors, you may need to go to beyond loan committee to go to headquarters committee. And I, I had a deal, uh, man, it was bad. it would almost burn me. So I'll tell my quick story and you can tell yours. But I had a deal where I'd already had a business relationship with this lender. I had, I don't know, I think I had like two million in loans with them. So we had, a, you know, it wasn't tiny you know, loan package and it was going well. I asked the local guy, hey, can I get another loan? Sure. It was like $700,000 loan. He said, yep, we'll get it done. And the, the regional president in Kansas City happened to uh, have signature authority under two million. I mean, he could just, he didn't need committee. 
he goes, I can sign this, I can sign off this, no big deal. But as a matter of course, I typically go to committee out of a courtesy to them. So he did. So we went to the Kansas City Committee. Seven zero, I pass. He goes, oh, but now with with your other loans, it's going to put you over this threshold of two point five million, which means you got to go to headquarters committee, which is a different city. Which this guy sat on the board. He's like the number three guy in the bank. It goes to headquarters committee. It gets approved seven zero. Okay, no big deal. I'm winning. You know, I'm ready to. I'm ready to rock. I didn't have my written loan committee yet. I had to vote from my guy. Hey, seven zero, we're good. I let my earnest money go firm. Spent all my money on third party reports. I'm 15 days out from closing. This is a deal that I'm buying at a 15 cap on the first day it's on the market. So I really want to close it because it's going to go fast the next day. I get the call. We didn't realize this was in Illinois. I'm like, what do you mean? Didn't it was, that's the address. It's been in Illinois the whole time. <laughs> oh, well, we realized it, but the CEO didn't. And he didn't like Illinois. We're a Missouri bank, so we don't do Illinois. And we do, we do follow our clients like you to other states. Sometimes we just need something like Illinois. So he vetoed the loan. What do you mean vetoed it? We had 7 0. Yeah, let's committee. But he, he, can, he was out of town. And then they had the bank audit that week. So they missed the loan committee. So anyway, long story short, I had 10 days to close this deal. And I had no loan committee. So luckily, I had a different bank that I had a good relationship with. And the two banks together shared the appraisals. I didn't have time to order new appraisals. Two banks shared the appraisals. And then I was able to close that deal 10 days later. And it's been a home run of a deal for me. And I almost missed it because the bank let me down. Luckily, another bank stepped up. And to some degree, they both stepped up. So your, your point is, is well taken with me that uh, you don't, you know, a bird in hand is worth two in the bush. And uh, that's my bank bank commitment story. Do you want to share your recent story in that saga? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was crazy, but luckily I had your guidance to, to guide me through the situation. We got it all going okay. But essentially, I had been looking for a local bank to finance uh, my transaction for a long time. And after calling a ton of banks, you know, they had all said that they weren't willing to do the loan. I had finally found one, uh, which was a little bit surprising to me because the park is in Iowa and the bank was in South Dakota. Um, but the gentleman I spoke with, you know, he sold himself as, oh, I'm super mobile home park savvy. And I've got a ton of mobile home parks on my portfolio. And I would love to do this loan. I said, amazing. I was super excited about the whole process. And uh, I asked him at one point, so how does the loan committee process work? And he told me that uh, because of his seniority at the bank and the fact that, um, you know, he's well-respected there, it didn't have to go to loan committee that he could just approve it. So, okay, perfect. I'm super excited about it. Not only does he tell me that he could approve it, but I had thankfully asked for approval in writing in which he sent me an approval letter on the bank letterhead with his name. Now he has been telling me for months that we're good to go. And that he even told me that the appraisal had already been ordered, told me who the appraisal had been ordered by. And we're about three days before closing. And this guy goes, AWOL, I can't get a hold of him. He's not answering my calls. And finally he responds saying, Hey, I'm so sorry. I don't know how to say this, but our bank president has vetoed your loan. I said, excuse me, what do you mean he's vetoed my loan? And he said, well, your primary residence is in Florida and the bank is in Iowa and that's, you know, it doesn't fit our criteria. I said, hold on, you've, you've told me that all along you've known this. I communicated this from the very start. It's not that I was hiding anything from you. How could you do this? 
So I contacted the president of the bank and luckily you had, you had guided me properly and said, hey, look, if you've got that approval writing, there are serious reputational damage, uh, damages for the bank. So I tried playing my big ball cap, you know, my, my attorney, we've got all this going on and uh, essentially communicated this to him like, hey, look, I've got this approval letter and the president of the bank was shocked. He had never heard about this story. It had just been brought to committee that day. Uh, my loan officer had been saying that he had seniority at the bank. He had barely been working there for a very short period of time. And the bank had no interest in doing the loan, but because I had that approval in writing, they had no choice but to complete the loan. And so I got very lucky there. It was great. Yeah, I love that you called me and said, not only is the guy not senior, he's been there like 35 days. He's never done a loan. <laughs> And he's, he's representing that he's got committee approval. And and then the, the last best part of that is when they sent the loan terms through, you were supposed to get a five-year fixed rate. They gave you a 30. Yep. Then they give you they give you a 30-year loan. Which, uh, yep. Which is like the best small bank loan in America. And, and yes. you got it, you know, by the via the president three days before closing, and they never met you. I mean, it's just it worked out in, in the end, I think it worked out better than it could have, but it just I'm sure it gave I you think stress so. there the last week, but that's yep. great, man. That's great. Uh, there's definitely some lessons learned there to, you know, make sure you get the loan commitment, but also you, you were, you were on top of the guy and you got it in writing. That was so prudent. And in fact, this guy told you, Oh, we got John Smith from CBRE doing the appraisal. Like, why would he make that up? We have no idea. He was fired, fired, wasn't he? I'm not sure if he was fired. I think he, so I called into the bank a couple days later and usually they had this lady who would answer the phone, the secretary and he answered the phone. And so I was like, oh, maybe they demoted him to, to answer the phones for a little bit of time. But then when I went up to the bank uh, to actually pick up my checks and uh, introduce myself once I closed, cause I wanted to show face and give them the confidence that they didn't just have to do this, that I was really gonna put my foot forward. Um, it's a very small bank and everybody has their own cubicle. It's about six, only six people that work there. I looked around and I couldn't find them there. So I have no idea. Wow. That's crazy. That's, that's going to be a great story for years. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully the next one's not so stressful. But that's great, Mark. Before we go, any, any other things you want to share, tips or tricks or anything, anything you want to ask me or discuss? Well, yeah, before we go, I do want to, uh, I, I kind of want to pat your back a little bit because uh, you helped me out with the back rent contingency, uh, which I would like to tell the story real quick, if, if you don't mind. So sure. I know you had you can pat yeah, my back on my show all you want. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Yeah. So Ferd had an episode uh, uh, a couple weeks ago about uh, closing contingencies. And one of the things was uh, make sure that you have access to all the back rent that's owed to you. Um, so perfect did my closing documents and included a, a phrase in there that any back rent that's that's due uh, and is received in the future is completely mine and, and, and not the sellers. And uh, we've got some Section 8 tenants um, in our uh, community. And um, I come to find out from HUD that one of them was about $2,200 in uh, back rent that they had never paid off. And the day after closing, literally the day after closing, HUD had found out that she had owed $2,200. So they sent a check over to the seller since he was signed up for ACH payments of $2,200. And he tried not telling me about it. I got lucky that I found out through HUD through my conversation. And um, so I brought it up to him and I said, hey, I heard that you got this check for $2,200. 
this contingency indicates that his mind, he had no choice. He signed me a check for $2,200. So that's $2,200 that I got for free. Thanks to a nice contingency from a well-educated attorney. Hey man, that's great. I, you know, I've never got that lucky from my own provision. So uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the key there is it, I think it's reasonable for the, like today's the 17th of February. It's reasonable for the seller to get any February rent that has been already been allocated to you on the closing statement via prorations. But as far as months that precede February, I think it'd be unreasonable for the seller to go get March, April, May, June, July, all the way through January rent, because frankly, they already had the opportunity to collect it and they didn't. And, and this, I learned this from doing retail deals because I didn't want the, previ the previous owner, the seller suing or garnishing my tenant, making their ability to pay me future rent more challenging. And practically they don't have the they don't have the rights to sue for possession. So their only real right as a seller would be to sue for garnishment. And I didn't really want to harass my tenants. And so I basically would pitch these guys, look, if you could have collected it, you already would have. It's a bad loss for you. But for me, maybe I collect it because I have now the new muscle of, of possession. Second, I can forgive it and be a nice guy and get some goodwill. And I often do that. Hey, I'll turn it, I'll, I'll forgive this rent as long as you start paying me. I don't care about paying the last guy. Or third, I can forgive it and write it off on my taxes because when I bought the rights to it as part of the purchase via this closing document, this assignment of leases document, I bought the rights to it. So it's a receivable, which is an asset for me. If I never collect it and I forgive it, my receivable goes to zero, which is a loss. So it's a, it's a, it's, it doesn't really cost me. It's kind of like depreciation. It's a paper loss that doesn't cost you anything. So it's generally pretty easy to negotiate that against the seller. In your case, it actually just happened to be, you know, poof, you know, 2000 bucks, man, that's great. So thanks for, thanks for sharing the story with me previously. I appreciate that. And thanks for sharing it with our listeners here because it's uh, going to give them something to learn from as well. Absolutely. Thank you, Ferd. You got it, man. Mark, thanks. This has been fun. Tell us where the people can reach you and how they can reach out to you after this episode. Yeah. If you want to reach out, my email is Mark, M-A-R-K at, sosacapitalgroup.com that's s-o-s-a capitalgroup.com and uh or on instagram i'm just uh mhp mark and i'm uh throwing up pictures of all the rehabs i'm doing uh how i'm fixing pipes and whatnot so if you want to just see real life videos of how i'm tackling things and just kind of learn they're in my highlights you're more than welcome to check them out there all right sounds good thanks mark all right thanks for appreciate it You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.